You're listening to Just, stories about the people working to build thriving communities rooted in justice. I'm Jess Averhart, co-founder of Black Wall Street Homecoming. And I'm Rob Shields, executive director of the ReCity Network. All right, look, so here's why we're here. We're here to get proximate, we're here to listen, we're here to process, and we're here to help you process. But here's what we're not gonna do. We're not gonna be preachy because we don't have all the answers and we will never make you feel like an outsider. Keeping with the theme of sharing, we always want to acknowledge the whole person and that starts with our personal, personal check-in. check-in. Let's do it. Jess. Rob. Friend. Hey, hey I friend. feel like it's been longer in between record, even though that's not true. We've recorded very recently, but it's still yeah. like it's been a minute. Maybe that's the normal, nicer weather, warmer weather elongating i think we've had more going on in between like we've maybe got yeah. outside and done more things and so we feel like hey friend it's been months but really it's just that we've been doing more i think that's it so i feel wow. the same that's way astute astute observation that's that's covid right the idea that like our social calendars used to be the saddest thing in the world and now we're slowly <laughs> kind of peppering things back in i guess some people are doing it quickly i think the majority of us are even back in to to the world a little bit. So catch us, catch yeah. our listeners up on what's been making it onto your social calendar since we last talked, right? Yeah, our check-in. I love it. Well, I'm probably on the spectrum of moving faster than slower. With That's the, not with a surprise. Us. I don't think anybody's yeah. surprised to hear that. <laughs> I'm so excited to get my like rhythm back, my, my faster-paced rhythm. Well, last week, my son and I hopped on a plane for the first time in a year. And went to Boca Raton, Florida, which is where he will find himself in about 60 days moving into Florida Atlantic. I'm really excited about now. I got to tell you, when I was going down there, I wasn't unexcited or nervous. I was just kind of like, yo, I don't know anybody in Boca Raton. Mm. Like, I'm sending my kid to a community of people that don't know me, don't know him. Like, if something goes down, I have to book a flight (laughs) to get Mm -hmm. there. And so a lot of that was a little bit unsettling. But once I got down there, I we'd done some work in advance and got some great meetings set up and had wonderful dinner with the president of the Boca Raton Chamber of Commerce. And let me just say that the president of Florida Atlantic is on his board. So that was a very helpful meeting. Are, so are they, they're just trying to pull you into connected. the booster club early is all it is. <laughs> they're just trying to get you to become that. They give Listen, you a bunch of t-shirts, you know. That's that, right. To, the goodie bags of all the things. Uh-huh. So I left feeling like maybe not highly networked, but I felt like I met enough people that had enough network that if my son gets into a sticky wicket, I'm using that. I don't know what that is, but I like to use it. We can, I can make a call or two and we'll be all right. So that was a beautiful trip. The weather was amazing. I enjoyed myself immensely. The, the people in town were lovely. And so I felt great. I came back with really good energy and a really good feeling. I think he's going to do great. So that was my last week. So that's a pretty big check-in for us. Cause, yeah, big moves. You know, big moves. And how big, Trey's big doing good? He's, he's excited? He's, listen, he's on another level. He, he's ready to go. Tomorrow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is, <laughs> this, is, this is easy for him. Yeah, He's not losing sleep over this. He's just ready. And I'm the one who's waking up at three. Are we good? Did we get the long sheets for the bed? That type of stuff. Did you know you have to buy the long sheets, the extra long sheets? Can't buy the I, short ones. It's the whole thing. And he's six five, so we can't definitely can't. I know that feeling. You know, you we're know, in the tall territory. Yeah, right. too big for this world. Him and I both. Yeah, yeah I get it. 
I guess. Your turn. Well, now that's my check-in. We we ended up somehow talking about extra long sheets, so we've been so weird. Track. <laughs> I'm getting deja vu because I feel like we are in different phases of life, and yet somehow they're like often parallel each other. Because I'm sitting here like my update is like the things I'm adding back to my calendar is getting my kids back in school next week. Like we've been doing virtual things with four kids seven and under for a year virtual kindergarten and all its beauty and challenges. And now like at the end of the tunnel, we're, we're sending them off. Our oldest two are going to be going to elementary school together for the first time on Monday. I guess that'll be around the time when this episode airs. And so that's a big shift. You know, I'm getting the moment really delayed sending my kids to kindergarten, the actual building in, in April instead of the fall. But yeah, I think the social thing, we're easing back in, you know, first time going to the church indoors for a while. And that was its own kind of joy and feel experience, that kind of community for, for the first time in person for, for a long time. Yeah, just getting back outside. My wife has got a green thumb. So like her planting the vegetable garden in the backyard and just like really experiencing a lot of these healthy rhythms that we feel like we just haven't had the capacity for, haven't been able to do in a long time. So really, really grateful. And yeah. Feels like the Congrats. we're both in that like closing of a chapter, beginning of a new one. So turning a new mm-hmm. leaf in the spring. I love this. Well, this is going to well, be fun. I'm excited about this conversation, Rob. I know you're going to set it up, but I'm really looking yeah. forward to the to the topic. I think our listeners will be as well. Good. Yeah, and I, I think you know, speaking of church, right? I think that um, I'm yeah. really excited about this conversation and just to be able to lean into a different perspective on issues of justice. I think our guest today is going to be uh, doing an incredible job of helping us. Kind of pop under the hood a little bit and have a conversation that really is, is really nuanced in ways that we have not uh, leaned into uh, in the history of our podcast. So super excited. I want to go ahead and welcome David Swanson onto the call. David, are you there? Can you hear us? I can hear you. I don't have anything to say about sheets, but I can, I can at least <laughs> hear you. Um, you know, don't, Nothing to don't, add? don't short sheet yourself, David. You have, yeah, there we go. Yeah. I'm a mere six six one, so I, I can still get by with the regular size sheets, I guess. <laughs> okay. All right. It th- th- sounds like this is just going to be a theme for today, and we just need to embrace the chest. Uh, we'll have to I find a way to good. work in the sheet metaphor sheet whenever at possible. The end. Yeah. I that's think right. So. That's okay, right. That's a good a buzzword for today is extra long sheets. Extra, extra long okay. sheets. That's right. Well, David, I'm really looking forward to this conversation. Really excited for our listeners to learn more about your story and the journey you've been on in justice spaces and how you're really helping to help others along with you in in this journey. I know that's been something for me. I've been following your work for a little while now and excited to be able to introduce it to a a wider audience uh, or a different audience. A lot of our folks are homegrown here in North Carolina, but we got some folks from all over the world too. So I'm not sure, but I'm I'm, hope, I'm guaranteeing there's at least one new person that is going to be able to introduce to your work today, and we're excited to make that happen. So for our listeners, David Swanson is the pastor of New Community Covenant Church, a multicultural congregation in Chicago's Bronzeville neighborhood. He helps lead New Community Outreach, a nonprofit that collaborates with the community to reduce sources of trauma and speaks around the country on topics of racial justice and reconciliation. He's written articles for Christianity Today, the Inglewood Review of Books, and the Covenant Companion. And he lives in Chicago with his wife and his two sons. And he's the author of Rediscipling the White Shirt, which I'm going to just read the, a little blurb from the book to help frame up this conversation. On the back, it says, many white Christians across America are waking up to the fact that something is seriously wrong. But often, this is where we get stuck. 
confronted by the deep-rooted racial injustice in our society, many white Christians instinctively scrambled to add diversity to their churches and ministries. But is diversity really the answer to widespread racial dysfunction that we see in the church? In this simple but powerful book, David contends that discipleship, not diversity, lies at the heart of our white church's racial brokenness. And before white churches can pursue diversity, he argues we must first take steps to address the faulty discipleship that has led to our segregation in the first place. So for our listeners, kind of before we hand the mic over to David, I think we just want to name and recognize that in this justice work, everyone comes to these conversations with different identities and different lived experiences. And we're excited to welcome David in to speak from a pastor's perspective, to speak from a white Christian's perspective on what this work entails for him and what that's looked like in his life. We also recognize that may not be where you're coming from. And we know that our listener base is is across the spectrum in many ways, incredibly diverse, including across the faith spectrum. And so we just, we really firmly believe that this is an opportunity for everyone to learn and lean in to David's story, pop under the hood uh, of the white church a little bit. There may be some terms in here that we'll need to define and we'll define Mm -hmm. for you along the way, but we're really looking forward to this conversation because we think it's an important one. And we just want to, we want to hold space uniquely for this conversation and the power that it, it could bring to to the podcast. David, thank you for bearing with us there, because I know you already know all that stuff. Yeah. It's, Welcome, it's good. David. I, thank you. I guess it's good to remember. And mo- most stuff doesn't live up to the hype. So now I'm nervous. Sorry, I'm, I'm like psyching you out right before I ask the first right. question. It's like psychological warfare here. So, hey, let's just jump right into this thing. Redisciplining the White Church. What a title, right? We're going to circle back to the title here in a second, but you are laser focused, right? It's very clear. Mm-hmm from the synopsis in who you're addressing and kind of your target audience for your book. You don't vary the lead in any way. So before we unpack those themes that you lay out, tell us, just tell us a little bit more about your story. How did you come to care about the issues that you lay out in your book, specifically around issues of justice and race? Yeah, well, thanks to both of you for caring and being interested in, in, in this book and welcoming me to your space. Wish we could be in person together in North Carolina. I would expect a, a delicious lunch. Hopefully that can happen at some point in the future. Yeah. I mean, I think I, so I've been a pastor now for 15, 17 years or so. And the past 12 of those have been in the city of Chicago and 10 or 11 of those have been at the church where I I now pastor, which is a multiracial church in a majority African-American community called Bronzeville. And Bronzeville, for those who maybe don't know Chicago, would be the equivalent of Harlem in, in New York City. This historic African-American neighborhood with a, a really long, uh, very significant history in, in our city. And that's where I get the pastor. That's the church that I get to serve. And so immediately you can imagine how I have to think about issues related to race and reconciliation and racial injustice regularly, just, you know, based on the city that we live in, which remains a very segregated city based on the the demographics of our congregation. What does it actually look like for people to worship together, to live together, to do ministry together, to serve our neighbors together? And that's really been how how I've been significantly formed over the past decade is, you know, what is it that the Bible has to say about some of the pressing concerns of racial inequity, racial injustice uh, that we see all around us today. We're we're recording this in in, in the middle of more public racial trauma coming out of Minneapolis. And these are, you know, these realities are unmissable for all of us now, given the ubiquity of social media, stories that maybe would not have been as as public before are, are pretty well known. And so for 
a pastor like myself in a context like, like ours, I have to ask these questions. You know, what does the Bible say about this? What does it mean to be a Christian person in this time and place? What is the role of the church in the middle of so much racial antagonism and division and segregation? Are we content? Can we be okay with the segregated nature of so many of our congregational expressions in this country? Or is there something different for us? So I've stumbled my way through this for a long time. There's, I've had so many gracious and kind you know, mentors and, and, and folks who have helped me and, and formed me very deeply. But I've you know, come to believe that this is the central concern for the church in this country, whether or not we will live in line with the racial status quo or whether we're going to live in a different kind of way. And I think, I think a different way is possible, but it does require us to, to reimagine some things that we've taken for granted for a long time. Yeah. Thank you, David. Appreciate that. And yes, friend, you come to North Carolina, we got you covered awesome. and we will dig even deeper into the, <laughs> into these topics over some barbecue. I will um, hold you to that for sure. You know, no problem. I appreciate you setting that up for our listeners amidst the environment that we find ourselves living. This is, I love that you call this the central concern. I think you're, I think you're right. And I'm excited about just the next few minutes to talk to you about this. Let's talk about the title, Rob alluded, that we would unpack this a little bit. I'd like to do it now. Mm. So let's talk about this title of, of the book, Rediscipling the White Church from Cheap Diversity to True Solidarity. Again, you cut right through the noise. Why don't you help us define a few terms for mm -hmm. our listeners so that we're not making this up and coming into it with our own assumptions? Mm. What's the white church, right? What is that? Where's it gone wrong in its efforts to address racial injustice in your mind? And let's just start there as the foundation. Yeah, by white church, I mean any church, or let's expand it out a little bit and say any ministry. It could be a Christian nonprofit, like one that I, I help with, that is demographically white. So where the majority of the people involved are white or culturally white. And this is an important nuance because I lead a multiracial church and sociologists will, will, will tell you that most multiracial churches in this country are actually culturally white. There's diversity in the, the, the ministry, but on a cultural level, on the level of assumptions and this is how we do things, it, it's resting on a white culture. So that's what I have in mind. I have in mind demographics and, and culture when I think about these white Christian spaces. As, as far as where we've gone wrong, I think it's good to frame the question that way because it's not as though white churches and Christians have not made attempts at racial reconciliation in the past. There have been significant and notable attempts. Unfortunately, most of these have either led to multiracial congregations that continue to perpetuate a white culture, or just as often, maybe more often, they've gone terribly wrong. Uh, a, a church tries something, it doesn't work, or it explodes, or people's feeling gets hurt, or, or people leave, and then that church is left saying, well, we're never going to try this again. This happens on, in organizations as well that say we're going to make that diversity a priority, and, and then you know th th things go off the rails uh, eventually. And, and this has to do with, again, some of these deep assumptions within white culture. I point out three of these assumptions in the book that I borrow from a couple of sociologists, uh, Michael Emerson and Christian Smith, 
who in looking at white organizations and, and ministry context identify individualism, relationalism, and anti-structuralism as three fundamental tools that white people reach for when addressing racial inequity and injustice. So individualism is this idea that each of us are, are free will, autonomous uh, individuals unencumbered by communities or places, and that's how we move through the world. Relationalism is the idea that racial inequity is fundamental a relationship problem. And the, the, the goal is to get people back together. It's, to, it's for people to like each other, to be friends with each other. And so we approach the, the problem of systemic injustice through the not robust enough lens of, mm -hmm. of relationships. And then anti-structuralism is this kind of allergy to structures and to systems because we think individualistically and relationally, uh, many white people get really nervous when we start talking about systems or structures because that seems to downplay the importance of the individual and in some circles downplay the importance of individual responsibility, which is you know in line with how we think of what it means to be an American citizen. These three tools are not in and of themselves bad, but they are very inadequate. And because these are the same three tools that we reach for in these white Christian spaces, our attempts at diversity, again, often end up either perpetuating white culture or end up you know, exploding in some kind of way where those white people end up. The lesson that, that we learn is, well, that's not really for us. We shouldn't even really try to do this because we tried it one time and it went so horribly wrong. Well done. Thank you for that. Thanks for unpacking yeah, three. It's great. Having read the book you referenced, you know, Divided by Faith, that was a succinctly said summary of a really in-depth sociological analysis there. I think our listeners, I'm going to go back and, and listen to that one again myself, because I think that, that's something you touch on so many really important frames of reference and like mm. that, that shape the lens in which we try to pursue this work. And I was probably on the edge of my seat thinking you would maybe even spend more time almost talking about the white church, I mean, people hear that term, I think oftentimes they hear about people who are resistant to diversity full stop. Right. And I think you're actually saying, you know what, I think there's enough there. Like, well, let's not spend our energy there. Let's actually talk about the faith communities that are actually trying to pursue yes. this, yes. but maybe just don't have the right lens so that they're actually not even going after the right solution because they haven't even diagnosed the problem correctly. Just like a doctor who like doesn't mm -hmm. do that root work and just, oh, yeah, okay. I'm just going to look at your skin to see what's going on, and I'm going to, I'm going to make assumptions about what's going underneath. And I'm really thankful that you took it there. I think it leads to a lot more productive conversation for us moving forward. And I think that is more indicative of who our listeners are, too, people yeah. who are yeah. wanting to do this you're, and just wanting to figure out how and what does it look like. And mm -hmm. you're helping them look internally first, especially if they're a white person coming from a, a Christian perspective on knowing thyself yeah. a little bit. Because, I, I mean, there's no doubt that there is a, a percentage of people who are antagonistic to this, right? We need to acknowledge that. There, there are people who, any time a conversation about uh, racial reconciliation or increasing diversity in an organizational context, that they, they don't want that. They're antagonistic against that. So that's a conversation that needs to be had. That There's work there to be done. But I am convinced that there is this other group of people who genuinely want to see racial injustice diminish, who genuinely want to see there be more equity in this country, who genuinely want to see, those of us who are Christians, expressions of our faith that uh, represent the beauty and the diversity of mm. the body of Christ. And to your point, though, the tools that we've been given or the frame that we've been given for that, it ends up taking us in some directions that we, we don't want to go, but then we get stuck there. 
Yeah. You've given us a really good preview of what you unpack further in your book. And I want to shift a little bit from framework to the timing of when your book mm-hmm. actually was released, because you mentioned, you know, earlier kind of this fresh wave. It feels like, you know, the waves never really stop. They just sometimes the timing in between them are very, but you know, we're coming up on the one year anniversary of your book's release. When this podcast airs, you know, your book came out on the 19th of May, 2020, just one week before George Floyd was murdered. You know, his trial happening, the police officers showed his trial happening right now at the time of our airing. And they're having a fresh wave, even within that city, right? Of, of things happening, protesting in the streets against injustice. So tell us a little bit about what the last year has been dropping your book and this information when you did against the backdrop of 2020. I mean, George Floyd is just, it's the most recognizable name, but it's not the only name. It's not even close. How have people been processing your message against that backdrop of increased awareness about racial injustice? Yeah, I mean, it, it is a it's a strange thing to write a book that is directed to white Christians because those of us who are white have been, I would say, formed, have been shaped, have been led to believe that the gravity of any conversation about race is not with us who are white. The gravity is somewhere else. It's with people of color or it's in the, you know, the majority black neighborhood or it's in the multi-ethnic church. That's where that stuff happens. And I've had many conversations over the years with well-meaning white people who've said, hey, we, we think it's really cool what your church is doing and what you guys are about. And I'm very supportive of that. But because I'm in a white town, a majority white town or white suburb or white church, there's not really much I can do about that. And this assumes a completely wrong way of understanding the way that race actually functions in this country, which is to say that the gravity of race actually is with those of us who are white. It is in these majority white spaces. It is with those of us who have been formed to not even think of ourselves in racial terms. But historically, this is where the gravity of responsibility actually lies. And we could say more about that. But I mentioned that by way of getting at your question, which is that in my book, I'm asking for white people to flip that paradigm and say, no, actually, this is our responsibility. We do have an important role to play here, even if my ministry, my organization, my church is mostly white, even if the suburb I live in is mostly white, especially if the area I'm in is mostly white, I have an important role to play. And I didn't know uh, how many people would actually be up for that paradigm shift. And I believe that given so much of what's been happening in our country publicly over the past 12 months, and perhaps the the kind of confluence of COVID as well, and, and some of us being forced to see things that we didn't want to earlier, has led to white Christians being open to this, to actually being able to see that this is not a concern over there. This is our concern. This is not someone else's responsibility. This is our responsibility. We need to figure out in our white spaces, in our white churches, how are we going to actually be playing a significant role at addressing racial injustice and racism in in this country? So I'm, I'm very encouraged by that. I listen closely to friends of color who've been in this work much longer than I have, who've said that they've never experienced a time when so many white people are speaking publicly. And that's important. That's notable. We should be aware of that. Are we still speaking publicly a year from now? Is there still momentum? You know, we don't have a good track record in this country, including those of us who are Christians. So the jury's out. 
But I'm hopeful that in this particular moment, there is at least a group of people who are waking up and saying, you know what, as members of the body of Christ, we have to figure out what our role is to play here. Yeah, David, I, in the spirit of that response where there is an awakening, maybe a, a sector, a group of folks nationally who are saying, who are, who are saying, yes, let's shift this paradigm. Let's take some ownership. Maybe there are some examples that you can share to bring that to life for us a little bit more. Like what examples are you seeing in the white churches that are taking this approach? I mean, you lead a church and you um, referenced it similar to Harlem in New York, right? In Bronzeville in Chicago. So what does that look like for you personally? And then just thinking about it as a recipe, what does it take? What does it take for a church to be an agent around healing, transformation, hope? Because I know our listeners are thinking, you know, is this a one-off? Is it just special people that are doing special things or reading your book, you know? But how can I, is it replicable? Whatever the words are, scalable. And so I'd love to hear your thoughts on that examples, how you're doing it and maybe what the recipe might be. It's loaded, but Mm -hmm, I think that's mm -hmm. where we're headed here. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So our our church is uh, a little bit unique in this conversation, given our setting, right? The majority of people who are coming to our church, they they already understand this is really significant. Again, given the context Mm -hmm. and, and the demographics of our church. Having said that, one of the things that we have tried to do really intentionally at our church is to connect discipleship with racial justice, that these are not separate things. I, I actually just got off a conversation with some folks who were asking me about this. And I said, the way that we think about racial reconciliation and justice is not as a ministry or something we do. We think about it in terms of our identity. This is who we are. This is who God has called us to be. We are called to be the reconciled people of God. And so that means we we talk about this a lot because given our particular American context, the air that we're breathing has made it really difficult for the American church to actually live into this reconciled identity. So, So that is something that we try to do very regularly is to say that part of following Jesus, part of becoming like Jesus, part of representing Jesus is to learn how to beat the body of Christ together across these lines of cultural separation and and division. In terms of churches that are more in the target group who I was keeping in mind as I was writing, I'm thinking about a friend who pastors a church here in the state of Illinois, out out by the border of Iowa. He's in a a pretty rural community. I'm not sure you call it a city. It's a large town and pastors a great church there majority white area region, certainly majority white church. But this friend has had a heart for reconciliation and justice for a long time. But again, it's been, well, given my context, what can I actually do? And one of the things that he has started to do is to develop a a close friendship with another pastor who's actually here in Chicago. It's about a three-hour drive. And this is an African-American pastor who is starting a church in a Black neighborhood. And so these two pastors have just become friends. And through them, their two churches have become friends. And this has meant that they take weekends occasionally and, and visit each other, share each other's pulpits. Not just the pastors, though. They bring people from their churches with them. They get updates about each other's churches. And what they're finding is there's actually quite a bit in common. 
in their two contexts, in the ways that jobs have left their neighborhoods, in the ways that addictive drugs have played significant roles in, in their neighborhood, in the way that violence uh, has been present in their neighborhoods. So they've discovered a lot of places of commonality that they wouldn't have known otherwise because of the way race works in this country, right? The way race works is to say, we don't have anything in common with each other. And it, it makes these things invisible, right? So I say that, and then I say this, my friend's church out in rural Illinois is, is filled with people who are being racially formed by our society, right? They're watching news. They're being told stories about people who are not white, right? Those messages get internalized. But now, because of these relationships and because of the intentionality there, there's another narrative. There's another story that is beginning to form them. So that when that lie gets told through our mass media, that racialized lie, they're actually also receiving a a true story through their relationships with their sisters and brothers in in Christ. That, to me, gets at the heart of what we're trying to do in in this book. It's not to, to say, okay, pastor, you need to throw everything away. You need to start from scratch. It's instead to say, what do you have at your disposal right now? And begin making some changes and some edits and some tweaks. What is the latent potential in the relationships you have access to in how you are celebrating Holy Communion together and how you are doing your children's ministry so that your people are being formed more and more in the truth and seeing themselves as members of this very diverse body of Christ. And and the good thing is that you can do this anywhere, right? You can be in rural Illinois and you can start doing this right now. And, And I think that's where my heart is hopeful, is in conversations with pastors and ministry leaders, again, whose context might be very racially homogenous, but who now see some footholds where they can actually start leading their churches and their ministries in this direction. Man, that's powerful. And I think it speaks so much to me and my heart, David, of like, I'm on this journey. We'll continue to be on it lifelong, but really early on in my earlier in my journey, feeling really frozen, paralyzed of like mm-hmm. thinking the work is out there mm-hmm. and I'm or being done by, versus the work is in here. And it's actually right at my fingertips. Yeah. If I just have the lens to see that I could take a step in a direction that, even if it's small, could make a really powerful difference. And, and ironically, going full circle back to what you said, even though, ironically, we're blind to the relational opportunities, even though, you know, as white Christians, you're predisposed to overvalue relationships. Somehow you miss that relationships are also part of dismantling all of these things and yeah. pursuing justice. So I, the way I would say that, uh, if I can interject here real quickly, and I think the, these two friends really exemplify this, they're not seeing their relationship as evidence that they've fixed something. You know what I mean? Like my friends, not, well, I have a black friend, so uh, clearly race is not a problem anymore <laughs> in our church, right? Instead, it becomes the ecosystem. Mm. It, it becomes like the, the the culture from which then they can pursue this ministry of reconciliation and justice. It's mm. not like the means to an end, and it's not evidence that we've arrived where we need to go, but we can't do this without that relational ecosystem that's helping us see things that we wouldn't have seen otherwise. Yeah, that's such a helpful word, talking about the both and, right, Mm -hmm. versus the either or. We're not saying shed relationships to only go and restructure systems, but it's also not the opposite. So I'd love to have you explain a little bit more about your own ecosystem. One of the themes of this third season for the Just Podcast is the concept of fusion friendships. And Mm -hmm. I think you already Mm -hmm. described one that you know, but I'd love to have our audience here for you personally Who are those friendships or one in particular, several that have really helped you forge across difference, kind of discover common values, goals around this topic or others Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. that have really shaped you and fueled you forward 
in, in this work. Yeah, well, for me, as we've been talking, this issue of, of race and, and racial injustice is, is really central. And so one of the ways that I think about that question is, is the tendency for someone like me, a white man, to, to generally be seen as the person who is in a position of leadership or authority. And, and what this means for those of us who are white men is that we rarely have the opportunity, or at least we rarely take the opportunity, to be led by people of color, and in this country, Black people in particular. The vast majority of white men have not had the, the, the opportunity, the chance, the privilege to be led in, in that kind of way. So, so that's one of the things that comes to mind for me over the past 10 years is how radically different my life is because I have been given those privileges of those kinds of relationships. Generally with peers or people older than me in our context, generally men and women who are Black, and generally, uh, people who are in the church, because that's my world, right? So these are often pastors, spiritual directors, or, or so on. And at this point, these are people who I've been in relationship with for 10 years or, or, or longer. And so there's a lot of water under the bridge. They know me really well. They know when I'm maybe not really telling the, the, the truth to, to myself. Maybe I'm missing something. They're able to call me, call me out on things. Mostly though, to be honest with you, they've served as a source of tremendous encouragement for me. When God called me to this church, I, I was riddled with insecurities. You know, I, why would you call a white man to pastor a multiracial church in a black neighborhood? That's just the, that's such a horrible idea. Such, I had a whole list of everybody who God should have called. And I tried to talk some of them into it. Like I, I take them out for a nice meal and tell them why God was asking them to do this. And, uh, and none of them agreed with, with me on that. And, and so one of the real gifts of these relationships over the years has been having these flesh and blood people who know me, who love me, who care for me, who are going to tell the truth to me, right? Say, no, David, we see that God has called you to this. And he, you know, here's what we see God doing in your life in ways that I, I, don't, I wouldn't have believed if it came from anybody else. I certainly wouldn't have believed it if it was just myself saying that to me. And so I have a spiritual director who I've met with for 10 years now, between every month and every three months, older African-American woman grew up in our neighborhood. And early on, I would say to her, I'd say, I'm just the wrong person for this. And I must've said that to her like every month for three years. And she would let me just talk and talk and talk. And then at the end of it, she would say, David, do you believe God called you to this or not? Yeah, I think so. And and she just did that. Like that was based like for three years. And and over those three years, I could start answering that with more and more confidence. Not because of how I figured it out or I was smarter, but just her question coming from her place, her wisdom, her experience allowed me to start to see how God might actually call someone like me, not because of how much I knew or how smart I was, but because I didn't know very much because I wasn't smart. That it was going to have to be in my not knowing, in my weakness, in my brokenness, in my foolishness. This is something uh, those of us who are Christians would say, this is what the gospel does for us. It's, it's not in how great we are, how strong we are, but it's in our weakness that, that God actually does amazing things. So long answer to your question, Rob, I wouldn't be who I am today without people like that spiritual director, without people like the pastors who I'm in fellowship with and so many others. Every time that I feel tired or feel like, oh, am I going in the wrong direction? I just have to think about those folks or have a conversation. And it's, oh no, we're good. This, you know, God is faithful. God is doing what God's going to do. Yeah. Yeah. I uh, appreciate that story, how you were able to surrender to guidance and surrender to wisdom and be thoughtful and have some humility in those moments to, to take in that learning. We do this segment at the end. It's our show up moment. My guess is that the question you'll get, I asked it at the top when I was asking about this recipe, right? This is all great. 
this is all great stuff. The book is great. All of what you're sharing is like right on. And I'm sure then the question you're getting from people is, okay, so now what do I do? Like, I heard your story. That was a really cool anecdote. Thank you for sharing these examples. Now I'm sitting in my car. I'm headed home. My spouse and part or partners making dinner. I want to talk about this. I don't know what we're going to talk. I want to, I'm excited about this kind of knowing what do I do? What should we talk about? What's our next right step? And for us, we call that the show up moment. So I'd love to hear if you have some advice, some thoughts on what would our next right step, particularly for white folks, right? Uh Our white Uh Christians who are wrestling with this and are saying, man, you're speaking my language. I've been saying this. I haven't put words around it. Now I have a book to read. That's that's one thing. But but then I'm I'm over dinner. I'm about to go for a run with my buddy in the morning. What do we talk about? So maybe yeah. some insights there would be great to help close us today. I love that question. I think one of the ways that that I would want to ask that question as a white person would be, what do I need to do to become more trustworthy to my friends and neighbors of color? So again, the instinct typically is, okay, I'm realizing that my life is very white, so I need to add some diversity to my life as a pastor. Okay, my church is really white. That doesn't seem to line up with the gospel, so I want to add some diversity to my church. I'm saying, let's go upstream from that. And before we try to answer that question, let's ask ourselves, why have I been okay with how white my life has been, with how segregated Mm -hmm. my life has been, with how, how homogenous our church has been? Why has that been okay for so, so long? That's a hard question. Mm-hmm. But if we're, we're going to actually move the needle on this, we have to be willing to sit with difficult questions like that, to dig into some of those difficult histories and say, what is it that kept us from caring about this for so, so long? What is it that kept us from caring about what our neighbors of color were saying to us for generations? Mm-hmm. Uh, as Christian people, there's some repentance that, that needs to happen there. But then we can also then say, so what would need to change in me? What would need to change in our family? What would need to change in our church for us to become more trustworthy to our neighbors of color, our friends of color, to people in our church who, who may be wanting to, to join our, our, our congregation? It's a question that's going to cause us to look inward, to have to do some pretty serious reflection, to have to ask ourselves, okay, are the assumptions that we've made assumptions that are hospitable for everybody or just for people who look like me, who come from where I come from. But I think that question then can generate so much creativity. Yeah. Now, I'm not going to get any more specific than that. And here's why. Because I actually think it should look really different in different places. I really think that's the case. So it's going to look one way in my church, going to look a different way in the church in, in, in North Carolina. It's going to look a different ter- way in, in this family or this organization because the context is different, right? Because who's involved in it is different because what God has called that particular church to is different. So I think once we get the framing questions right, once we get the paradigm flip, so we see our our role and responsibility, then the room for creativity is huge. And this is where it gets exciting, right? Because now the community comes together, puts their head together, starts praying, starts talking, starts dreaming a little bit. And what comes out of that can be, so now this church says, well, you know what? We, we have this little bit of a relationship with that church on the other side of town or down the street. Let's, let's have a conversation with them. Let's ask them what God is doing in, in, in their church. What, what has the Holy Spirit been doing recently with, with you all? Let's just listen. Let's just start to, to build that into our memory, into our imagination as we continue this journey forward. So again, I don't want to get any more specific than that because I don't want to like uh, suggest something that distracts from what is actually available to us. But I, I, I think the hard stuff is that initial stuff, the gut check, the right, like the introspection. And that's where most of us don't want to go. But if we can be brave enough to go there, 
if we can be brave enough to tell the truth about some of this stuff, on the other side of that is so much possibility, so much hope, so much creativity. That's where I hope that we can go. Mm. Can I jump in really quick, Rob? I just have a quick follow-up. Is there a network or have are you leading or developing like a white caucus around this church caucus <laughs> to have this conversation? Because you're like, I don't want to get, I don't want to prescribe, which is right. But, you know, I'm thinking about four churches in my head that are multicultural here locally that could benefit from having that high level conversation to be able to go back into their congregations, into their community, to be able to develop their unique creative solutions, their unique creative moments, right? But I also believe in like that community caucus idea. So I'm just curious how you approach it. Yeah, I think Rob leader. is going to start that. I'm pretty sure. I'm pretty sure Rob is going to. Oh, that's start. right. I set him up <laughs> well, didn't I? Did yeah, I think so. Good? Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's I such a good. So. The answer. The answer to that question is is no, and the answer also is there's a lot of people looking for something like that. I think mm-hmm. there's this work initially in white spaces can be very solitary, can be very lonely, and the tricky thing is that we're actually. We don't want to be all by ourselves, right? That this work actually requires community. It requires us to think in in terms of systems and structures and cultures and, and all of that stuff. But initially it can be very lonely. And so this is something that I have found. And so I, I love that question, Jessica, that that leaders and ministry leaders and pastors are are hungry for those points of mm-hmm. connection. And oftentimes these white leaders are actually pretty well networked with leaders and pastors of color. That's actually where for a lot of them, that's their primary community. That's where they feel most welcomed and most encouraged. But they're also aware that that's probably not the space where they're going to go and say like, okay, I got all these white people. What am I going to do? You know, that's, that's probably not the space for that. And so as they continue to nurture those communities and those relationships, I think some folks are starting to look for where can I have conversations to be held accountable, to be encouraged, to start to imagine some different possibilities. Yeah. So if anybody out there wants to do that, I, I would say. Oh, you don't go vague now. You were naming names earlier. You were giving me this. I felt like I was the guy in college that shows up late to the conversation and now has been assigned the most you've amount been, of work. You've been voluntold is what we say in our church. Uh, I will affirm. I, I, I totally agree that I, I'm so glad you asked that, Jess, because I do feel like a framework like that would be really powerful to come alongside agents of change, you know, like David, who are doing the work that testimony for myself, the, 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 the lonely work of trying to, to build build bridges in these spaces and not not to try to gather pity from people. It's just, it's just hard. And you, everyone needs community to do what they feel called to do. And I think this is not an exception to that. And I think that's the, your question alludes to the importance of you got to have a robust community in your corner to do this work, just like you need it for anything else. But yeah. Also, can I just say, you know, the moment is now, the urgency of now, yeah. like this idea yeah. of isolation and, and trudging through these questions and not sure if you turn right or left or, you know, slowing down to go fast, all of that. Like we don't, I'm clapping over here. This uh-huh, is what you're hearing uh-huh. in the mic. The time is now for this galvanization of this work and slowing it down just to get it right is a, uh-huh. is an approach. But come on, we've got to like, the isolation thing does slow us down. And I believe a caucus or a movement, it, that mm-hmm. accelerant is what we need today, is what we need today. So, you know, I would, you know, I guess it's sort of a challenge back to the, the two of you and those that you serve and influence that mm-hmm. this book is a really lovely framework. It provides that credibility, right, that folks are looking for and also provides a space and a safety net 
to have these deep conversations to, like I said before, force multiply this work because Mm. it really does need to ignite across the country so that we can see change and it will literally save people's lives. Mm. Like black people will be saved because of this, because minds Mm. will be changed. And that would Mm. be my hope is that we can, we can support families who are scared. Right. And the moment they encounter someone who's had a transformational moment through this work, their lives are changed forever and potentially saved. So I mm-hmm. it would encourage us to dig in on this. I think this is really special and I think it's an important conversation on many levels and all I'm going to say about it. But mm-hmm. it isn't my work to do, right? You all no. said that. I don't have yeah. to do this. That's you right. all have to do this. That's right. So this, That's exactly this is right. good. This is really good. Sounds like we need to get a barbecue dinner kind of brainstorming session on the books. We'll get David down to North Carolina and we'll... Uh, I'll receive that, Jeff. I'll take point. I'll just... <laughs> okay. I'll run point on getting that on the on y'all's busy calendars, some of that. Voluntold. Well done, David. Well done, David. <laughs> David, thank you so much for being with us. Just really appreciate you sharing the journey you took us on in this conversation and just the work that you're committed to doing. I mean, just laser sharp focus with humility. I think in many ways you're modeling in this conversation the principles you've laid out, which I think makes it not easy to receive, but easier to receive yeah. when you're really clearly living them out. And so Thankful for you. Thankful for your work. And uh, yeah, I do hope our paths could cross in the future and we can introduce you to the right form of barbecue. There is a right form and the wrong form. That'll be another, that's right. a bonus episode uh, for another day. <laughs> I don't talk about it very often. I was born in East Tennessee, didn't live there very long, and then went to college in Western North Carolina. So I actually do have, I'm not an expert, but I do have some opinions about these things. So I, uh, <laughs> there we go. I yeah. I love it. I love it. Well, thank you so much for, for being with us today. Thanks for thank having you. me. You Thanks, are. David. Appreciate you. Well, that was delightful. You talk about sometimes we get these folks on our podcast and I'm never sure, like I sort of have an idea of where we're headed. And then, you know, you realize the impact and power in the words and in the theme of the day. I I really, that was really, really helpful for me to hear that paradigm shift that David shared with us around where the onus lives for the white church and how it structurally, like historically has been fixing a black community or Mm -hmm. lives with the black community or lives with my black neighbor. I just need to understand him or her better through books versus. Yeah. So I'd love, so that's, I guess, you know, just high level. These are the things that like, as I, as we just let him go and now we're debriefing, that's like the one thing that's sitting with me. What's, What's sitting with you after this interview? Yeah, yeah. There's this phrase he said that really is, again, weighty, right? The great kind of gravity to it. This idea of, he mentioned when we asked him about the fusion friendships, about these two pastors that got together and really started Mm -hmm. to kind of recognize that there's a truer story that they discovered, right? Than Than they were hearing from the world or even from their own church background. They were discovering a truer story and that kind of took power away from these other narratives that they're swimming in. That man, that right there is is really powerful. And I think him to go on to talk about his relationship with his spiritual mentor, kind of spiritual director. He mentioned you know, the wisdom of that older African American woman that took the patience and time to invest, you know, at, at great risk to herself, right? I mean, mm-hmm. to invest in him when he was trying to give his job away. I resonated with that because you know, for me, I, I definitely was in that space as a white guy, feeling like I there was this vision for what is now ReCity that I was being called to, but really feeling inadequate and saying, I don't think I'm the right guy. I literally tried to give my job away several times <laughs> in those first couple of years because I felt 
so convicted that white people being in charge is the problem, you know, and we need to not, yeah. I don't need to be an example of that. Yet another one. That's not going to, that's going to be a walking contradiction. And I think just to your point, to me, what you just said about the weight shifting of the, the problem being out there to, oh, the work that I need to do inside my own heart and mind and the work I need to do with my white brothers and sisters. That is what really emboldened me to say, no, I am the right person for this because that's where my work needs to be done. It's not Mm -hmm. in fixing black and brown communities. It's actually with my own people, you know, graciously helping them on this journey in ways that people did for me in humility to help introduce them to that truer story, the way that I've tasted it. And so that that really was, I could see myself in, in his story a little bit in ways that really took me back you know, seven years ago when I was just starting Reed City and now how emboldened I feel to lean into that work. So that, that would be my biggest takeaway. Yeah. Yeah. Powerful. Well, I think it's a beginning. I think that our listeners should grab the book. All of our listeners, not just white Christians, but it's, it's interesting to understand how members of our community think and process. And so this mm-hmm. book is just insightful, right? It provides insight that I think that can be carried through a different conversation along the way or along this journey. So, you know, don't self-eliminate in this moment because you don't identify as white or you don't identify as a Christian. See that as um, helpful context and information for a movement, a segment of our population that isn't centralized here, but it, but has a role to play in this work. and how this book frames up how that might actually play out, like what the work might look like. So I think that's really good and instructional at the very least. So I agree. And if you are white, who the book is written to, and you identify as a a Christian, a person of faith, I think being willing to go upstream, like you said, so powerfully, like, because I think that's where white people listening to our podcast could stop short of making it as personal as he encouraged you to make it of the how he answered the what do I do question. Let's ask ourselves, what do I need to do to become more trustworthy to my neighbors of color? Uh, and why have I been okay with not caring about this for so long and occupying homogenous spaces in my life? Why has that been okay until now? Honestly, Jeff, those questions are even harder to ask ourselves than they are to go pick up a book and educate yourself because you can still educate yourself and an emotional distance and, and keep it sure. from hitting home. But I don't think you can ask yourself those questions without making this thing deeply personal to your own story. Excellent point. Yeah. You can so, do that right now because you can write those two questions down and talk about them today. You don't need to go back. That's right. Them, you can share. I'm sure David would love you too. Yeah. That's right. And yeah. then we'll follow up with him to figure out what his favorite. I have a, he's Western, East Tennessee, West NC. I feel like we're not going to get along when it comes to barbecue type. That's, I'm that's Eastern great. North Carolina. We know where that story's going. Yeah. Yeah. It'll be fun. Put it, put, throw it on the debate <laughs> floor and see what happens. <laughs> it, will, it will. Well, as always, friends, so grateful to be on this journey with you. And uh, for our listeners, until next time. Same here. Thanks, friends. Thanks so much for listening to Just. In the spirit of sharing, if you like what you've heard, tell a friend about the show and give us a five-star rating and review. Many thanks to DJ P-Dog and producer Low Key for producing the music for our show. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. 